0: Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us for our online service today on June 14th. We are really, really glad to have you with us. want to give you a little heads up that we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper communion this morning. So if you've got a piece of bread at home or some type of juice, you might want to have that handy in about 25 minutes. We'll uh, partake of communion together, or you may have gotten one of the little prepackaged cups Uh, here at our May 31 event. Either way, just want to let you know that we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper uh, later on in the message. We're going to continue today in our one-story theme. We're looking at the unity of the Bible, Old and New Testaments together, and today we're looking at the prophet Jeremiah. Um, Next week, we'll be at the book of Lamentations, a book that's also connected with the name of Jeremiah, but I want to make a bit of a change in the message emphasis next week. And in light of what's happening in our world right now, I want to talk about lamenting racism. This week brings the celebration of Juneteenth on June 19th. Now, uh, it's not a celebration we hear a lot about in predominantly white churches, Uh, but very well known to uh, black Americans. It's also known as Freedom Day or Jubilee Day, and it's connected with the reading of the Emancipation Proclamation on June 19, 1865 to newly freed African Americans in uh, Texas, the last state to have the proclamation read. So with that in mind, with everything happening in our world, I want to touch on the Book of Lamentations next week, but really focus on the whole idea of lamenting uh, racism. But again today, uh, the book of Jeremiah. And before we begin, would you join me as we pray together? Father, we come today in the great name of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, as we look at our nation today, I think of Psalm 2, which says, Why did the nations rage? And certainly there is turmoil in our own land. We see in that same psalm, the solution, kiss the sun, reverence the sun, the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And Lord, we look to you. We look to you for our salvation. We look to you for our peace. And we pray today for the peace of our nation, for your rule for your guiding hand, for your wisdom. And this morning, I pray for your people, those watching or listening to our service. I pray they would sense your holy presence. I pray you would draw them close. I pray you do a deep work of the Holy Spirit in each one of us to renew our faith, to strengthen our devotion, so that by the end of this service, we would know you better, and we would love you more. And we ask this in your great name. Amen. Have you ever heard of the word Jeremiah or Jeremiad ending in the letter D. It refers to a, a long, mournful complaint or list of woes. It's an English word that we don't use a whole lot, but um I mentioned it this morning because it's connected with the name of Jeremiah in in the Bible. It's another English word that has its roots in Scripture. And I mention it just because the name of Jeremiah is so connected with mourning, complaining. Uh, He's known as the weeping prophet. Because of the emphasis in the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations, another book which again is connected with his name. Now, while Jeremiah the prophet is very much connected with lamenting, mourning, mourning particularly the sins of the Israelites and their coming judgment, his very name is filled with hope because the name Jeremiah literally means Yahweh lifts up or Yahweh establishes if you watched our service last week when we were in the book of Isaiah you may recall I mentioned that Isaiah like Jeremiah is a God-bearing name that is the name of Yahweh which is God's name for himself Jehovah the Lord Uh, The name of Yahweh is in the name Jeremiah, just as in the name Isaiah. Isaiah means Yahweh saves. Jeremiah means Yahweh lifts up. The A H on the end of the name is an indication of the Hebrew word uh, for Yahweh. So Jeremiah, though he focuses on mourning the sins of the people, mourning the judgment of the people, his name means Yahweh lifts up. Yahweh establishes. And before we leave the prophecies of Jeremiah this morning, we're going to see great, great hope. Uh, Yahweh literally lifting up the gospel of Jesus in this great book. A little bit of background on the prophet Jeremiah. First of all, Jeremiah did not want to be a prophet. The very beginning of the book of Jeremiah, we read these words. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Let me pause just one moment. This is a critically important verse. This verse, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. It's really important for two reasons. Number one, it really emphasizes the remarkable omniscience of God. God knows past, present, and future. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God is never taken by surprise. He rules over history. But secondly, the great importance, the reality of life in the womb. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Critically important uh, verse for those two, two points. The omniscience of God and the reality of life In the womb. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Don't say I'm only a youth, for all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Jeremiah was a reluctant prophet. He didn't want to be a prophet, but he obeyed, he became a prophet. And so we would conclude by that probably he was blessed, right? He didn't want to be a prophet. God called him to be a prophet. He obeyed, so he was blessed, right? Actually, Jeremiah was beaten. He was put into stocks. He was humiliated. He was thrown into a pit. He had few friends or supporters. He often complained to God so that he's known as the weeping prophet. In the word in English, Jeremiah is actually uh, connected with his name. Yet for all that, Jeremiah was a major prophet entrusted with God's mighty message, largely one of judgment, yes, but one of the longest gospel passages, perhaps the longest, in fact, in the Old Testament that is quoted directly in the New Testament, comes from the prophet Jeremiah. And we'll look at that that in a few minutes this morning. Jeremiah didn't want to be a prophet. He was called to proclaim judgment against Judah in Jerusalem. We see this in the first chapter as well as throughout the book where the Lord says, For behold, I'm calling all the tribes of the kingdom of the north. They shall come. Everyone set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem and against all its walls all around and against the cities of Judah. I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil and forsaking me, for they have made offerings to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. The sin of the Israelites, worshiping the works of their own hands. And God says the enemy is literally at the gates. Judgments coming. So, Jeremiah called Israel to repentance. Chapter 3 Verses 12 and 13, we read these words from God. Go, proclaim these words toward the north and say, return, faithless Israel. In other words, call the people of Israel to repent, to return to the Lord. Return, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your sin. You see the prophet giving the Israelites the opportunity, the call, the mandate to repent. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. God called out the idolatry among the Israelites and called them to repent, reminded them that he was merciful, used Jeremiah to bring warning of coming judgment. But they were stubborn, They were hardened in heart, and it seems to me they were immensely proud. One writer, one author I read, writes these words. The people of Judah believed that no one and nothing could defeat them. They believed that God would bless them and protect them regardless of how they behaved. There was a doctrine known as the inviolability of of Zion. That is, Zion, uh, the city of God, couldn't be violated. The temple couldn't be destroyed. Jerusalem couldn't be destroyed. As this writer wrote, they believed God would bless them and protect them regardless of how they behave. We're the city of God. Nobody can destroy us. Yet God did judge them. The temple was destroyed. People were carried away into another land, into exile. They were proud, stubborn in their idolatry. I wonder if we in our nation sometimes are so proud of who we are that we feel like judgment could really could really never shake us too much. I don't think we'd ever say this, hopefully we wouldn't be arrogant enough arrogant enough to say this, but I, I expect sometimes we thought God, God would never destroy the United States because we're the ones that send missionaries to all the world. We're the ones that give money and food to all the world. Those of you who know world missions know that that picture has been dramatically changing in recent years with other countries sending out many, many missionaries. But I think there's the thought in, in some almost that, well, God needs us reality is God does not need us. We need God. We desperately need God. We must never so harden our hearts that we become blind to the reality of idols in our own hearts. Jeremiah called Israel to repentance, and he grieved for his people. Jeremiah 9, 1 says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, mourned for the coming desolation and destruction of Jerusalem. There's a famous painting by uh, Rembrandt with Jeremiah lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem. He's so connected with this mournful sorrow for the sins of the people. Jeremiah prophesied for over 40 years up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC and even even for a few years after that. There are approximately, and I haven't counted them, but take this from a commentator I read, 40 quotes from Jeremiah in the New Testament. About half of these are in in the book of Revelation. If you read the book of Revelation about the fall of Babylon Uh, some of what is said there will come from the book of Jeremiah. So that's just a little bit of an overview of the book. But the question I want to ask is, what does the book of Jeremiah teach us here, now, in 2020? I mean, we're almost 27 centuries later than these prophecies. What is its relevance to us today? How does it speak to us? Why has God made this book part of his one-story plan for the great redemption of his people? Well, the prophecies of Jeremiah point to, I think, four things I'd like to emphasize today. Number one, the emptiness and danger of idols. We see this throughout the book, particularly in Chapter 10, which Amanda read for us a moment ago. Verse 5 Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. Isn't that quite a picture of an idol? God is saying through the prophet, they don't have any power. They cannot speak. They have to be carried around. They can't even walk. Don't be afraid of them. They can't do evil, neither is it in them to do good. People were afraid of idols, they were afraid of offending an idol. The prophet said in verse 8, they're both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. In verse 15, they're worthless. A work of delusion. At the time of their punishment they shall perish. In verse 3 of that chapter Jeremiah had said these customs of the people in worshiping idols they're vanity. The word he used means a, a mist, a vapor. Emptiness. The emptiness and the danger of idols. Israel seems so prone to idolatry like all of the surrounding nations in their time and sometimes I wonder why? Why could these people who'd seen so many miracles of God have been so prone throughout their history to the worship of various idols worshipped by the surrounding nations? Well in part I believe it has to do with love of money, a root of all kinds of evil. There was a belief that idols brought prosperity, good weather, good crops, uh, fertility, blessings. And to to wrong or offend an idol, I could could and result in bad harm in your life. Jeremiah is saying they're empty. Not only that, they're dangerous. They lead you away from God. They lead you down a path of spiritual bondage, deception, and death. You know, as I look through the book of Jeremiah this week, it's a a long book, about 52 chapters. I ask myself a question as I do sometimes as I read lengthy books of the Old Testament. Why is there so much of this in the Old Testament? What is its relevance for us, to us today? Well, I think the answer is that idolatry is still a very big issue and a very big problem today, in 2020, for us. But our idols today are more hidden. They have to do more with issues of the heart. Apostle Paul gives us a hint of this in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 5 when he says, a covetous person, that is an idolater, will have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Tells us that greed, love of money, covetousness is a form of idolatry. And I think there are other sins of the heart like that, things in which we place our Hope or trust that are forms of idolatry. How can you and I know whether we have any hidden idols? Because sometimes I think we, we can be really unaware of the sin of idolatry in our own lives. I think we can ask ourselves questions like this. What, if anything, do I put before God in my heart devotion, in my actions? What, if anything, do I really put before God? Is there anything about which, if God said, give that up, I would say, no. And I'd probably justify it by saying, well, everybody else is doing it. Or it can't be wrong because everybody acts and thinks this way. God does not want us trusting in, loving, lesser things empty things. And the prophet Jeremiah is pointing us to the emptiness and the danger of idols. Secondly, the prophecies of Jeremiah point us to the greatness of God. This is where our heart should, should focus on the magnificence, the greatness of the one true God, As Jeremiah says in chapter 10, there is none like you, O Lord, for you are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. In chapter 10 and verse 10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. In his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. And in verse 12, I love this verse. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. Jeremiah calls us to God. Not only does he condemn idolatry, but he calls us to focus our hearts on the great one. The true and living God. Further, Jeremiah in his prophecies points to the great wisdom of turning to God. God doesn't call us to himself just so we can have a happier, more moral life and live by his rules. God calls us to himself so we could know him, really know him. Jeremiah stresses this in chapter 9, and what are really two, I think, of my favorite verses in the book of Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. This is what Jeremiah is calling us to, understanding and knowing God. That he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. The wisdom of turning to God that we might know him. To know God is to love God. To know God is to have His eternal life. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The Apostle Paul, writing about the value of the knowledge of God, said regarding the knowledge of Jesus, I, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's why in our church we so often talk about the goal, the great heart goal of knowing him better, loving him more. Jeremiah points out the greatness of God, the wisdom of turning to God, and furthermore, the promise, the promises of God's one-story plan. For all of the emphasis in the book of Jeremiah on judgment, and it is great, seems to be uh, the weight of the book having to do with judgment and Jeremiah's mourning over judgment for the sins of his people. There is in the book one of the greatest, perhaps the greatest promise um, in all the Bible of God's great plan, which becomes clear to us in the New Testament, what we're calling his one-story plan. It is the promise the prophet makes of the new covenant. These are those remarkable words that are so critically important in Scripture found in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant and hold on to those words, underline them in your thoughts, a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, think about that word for a moment. God says, I was their husband. This image of the marital relationship is often used in the Old Testament by the prophets to depict the relationship of God and the people of Israel and to depict their adulterous turning away from God. The New Testament, we find the picture of Christ in his church, the church being the bride of Christ. For I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. Do you hear what God is saying here? The Israelites broke the covenant that I gave to Moses, the law written on stones, the law laid before them to be read before them. But there's a day coming I'm going to write the law on their hearts. There's going to be a heart change. This is something the Holy Spirit will do. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. And again, this is God's heart that his people know him from the least to the greatest. And then these remarkable words, for I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. This is, according to one commentator I read, the longest Old Testament prophecy directly quoted in the New Testament um, about the gospel. You may wonder, how do we know this is pointing to the gospel? Well, it's very, very clear. Because in the New Testament book of Hebrews, written many years later, years after the coming and death of Jesus on the cross, the writer of the beautiful book of Hebrews is talking about the better covenant that through faith in Jesus Christ, we have today. He's talking about the fact that Jesus Christ is our great high priest, the mediator of a new covenant. And in laying out this case, proving it, establishing it, where does he go for evidence? He goes to the great prophecy of Jeremiah when Jeremiah rebuked the people for their sin but made the promise of the gospel. We read it in Hebrews 8. I won't read it all because it's simply... A quote of Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. If we were to continue reading beyond that point in the book of Hebrews, the writer of the book of Hebrews would write these words in chapter 9 and verse 15 about Jesus. Therefore he referring to Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance in the new covenant our inheritance is an allotment of is not an allotment of land like in the old testament we receive a promised eternal inheritance Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, that death was the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. When he died there, when he shed his blood, he brought to us the new covenant and the eternal inheritance that we have through our faith in him just prior to going to the cross Jesus gathered with his disciples for a meal and as they were sharing that meal Jesus said something remarkable to them when he took a cup and Jesus I believe is the first one about whom we read in the New Testament who quotes from Jeremiah 31 31 the words the prophet used about the new covenant When Jesus says in Luke 22 and verse 20, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. Jesus would there institute what we call the Lord's Supper just prior to his going to the cross. Some years after his death and resurrection, the Apostle Paul is teaching the church what the Lord's Supper really means. And he writes these words. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Paul is again using the words that Jesus used, that Jeremiah used, that the writer of Hebrews used to refer to what Christ has provided for us with our eternal inheritance, with the work of the Spirit of God writing His law on our hearts, with God bringing us into a relationship whereby we know Him truly know Him, and know His steadfast love. And so Paul says, as you reflect on what Jesus has done, those of you who've embraced His salvation, do this as often as you drink it in the words of Christ in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And so that's what we're going to do now. And uh, a reminder again, if you got a piece of bread at your house or juice, you might want to grab those Um, Now, if you've got one of the prepackaged cups, but before we partake of communion, I want to take heed to some other words the Apostle Paul wrote about communion. He goes on this passage to say, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What does that mean? That means taking communion as a serious thing. I think it means, for one, that we should be certain we're not treating this like some mere religious ritual that uh, doesn't have anything to do with a personal relationship with God. No, it's a proclamation that by faith we receive what Jesus has done for us in securing our salvation. And we are, he is our Lord. We are his followers. And we celebrate that by taking communion. It's also a time, and I'd like us to do this this morning, to ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts, particularly as we reflect on the words of Jeremiah as to whether they're hidden idols that stand in the way of our relationship with God. So I'd like you now to join me as we pray before we celebrate together communion, the Lord's Supper. Father, we come now in the wonderful name of Jesus. I pray first for any watching or listening to our service who have never transferred their trust to the work of Jesus on the cross, and for that alone, for their salvation. Would you bring that person today to an acknowledgement that Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life, the only true God? Would you bring that person to turn from sin or control or his or her her life and to turn to the way and the truth and the life, Jesus Christ, the only one who saves. Father, for those of us who are Christians, would you renew our faith today, strengthen our devotion to you, and as we take a moment for silent prayer and reflection now, Would you show to us whether we have any hidden idols that are in in any way standing in the way of our communion with you? Speak to us now by your Holy Spirit, Lord, we pray. Amen. And now, I'll give you just a moment. If you've got one of the prepackaged communion cups or a piece of bread in your house, I'll let you peel off the top layer of the little prepackaged cup and get the little wafer, and we'll all partake together as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And now, the body of Christ, given for you. I'll give you a moment now to um, open your prepackaged cup or grab the juice that you may be using at this point. Together we'll partake. The blood of Jesus Christ was shed for you. And now, if we were together this morning, and I look forward to that time very soon, we would have time in our service right now where it would be our greatest privilege to pray with you and for you, for your needs, for for those in need of healing, for those in need of restored relationships or renewed faith. And so right now, um, I wanna take a moment just to pray for you. So would you join me now? Uh, And just a moment of prayer for all those watching, listening to our service. Father, I want to pray today for your people. I pray for those in need of healing. That you would touch them with your healing mercy, grace, and restoring power today. To those whose souls are grieving mourning, hurting. For those who are lonely and feel isolated, would you bring your healing comfort? I pray today for our students whose world was turned so upside down by the virus and all the changes with school and sports and graduation. Father, remind them that your hand is upon all those who trust in you. And none of these things took you by surprise, but you have a plan for their lives. And Lord, you have appointed good works for those who are your workmanship to do in life. Lord, would you encourage your people again so that we leave here today? knowing you better, and loving you more. And we pray in your great name. Amen.